Now, back to Parinirvana Sutra. Forgive me for, on the recording, cutting off a few sentences there. What is our relationship to practice during these uncertain times? You know, there's war in the world, unnecessary. We are now three years into our pandemic isolations and uh, there's uncertainty about many things in our lives right now. So Sangha life becomes even more important as a place of refuge and as a place of support. This is where stability finds its roots in Sangha life. And of course, we can't separate Sangha from the other two of the triple treasure, Buddha and Dharma. Let's take a look at how they fit together and how Buddha's last teaching is a direct instruction about this triple treasure. We are a collective here at Santa Cruz Zen Center, and we have a very visible and sustainable infrastructure, a board that is functioning beautifully with a consensus decision-making process. We have buildings and grounds that are amazingly maintained, and we have great wealth. So we have this sustainable infrastructure. The board is currently making plans for the next, please understand this, for the next 20 years of sustainability. You know, this will be beyond my lifetime, most likely. So this is planning for the next generation, which is exactly the right thing to do. And the sustainability in Sangha includes abiding by the forms of practice. This is what we call our family style. These are the, the uh, practices that have been handed down over the years through various cultures. So in my view, when we adopt these forms of bowing the way we bow and chanting the way we chant and so on, wearing clothing that is not typical of the Western world, what I feel I'm doing is paying uh, honor to the heritage who would I be to second guess the forms that we have been given? <laughs> Let's indulge them completely and see what we learn. So. <clears throat> we have also precepts. In the Parinirvana Sutra, Buddha went out of his way to tell this to his monks and nuns at the time. <clears throat> Please do not be worried about my departure. He said again and again, after my death, you should receive and honor the precepts. These are the standards of conduct. This is like finding a light in the darkness or like a poor person obtaining a treasure. You should know that they are your great teacher and are not different from my actual presence in the world. Underline that for yourself. The abiding by the precepts, honoring this heritage is not different from Buddha's actual presence in the world. And we know that we have a version of the precepts that is uh, a list of do not, do not, do not. Uh, a disciple of Buddha does not take life, for example. 
or a disciple of Buddha does not lie, we can equally, uh, in our language, and then and therefore also in the actual sensation of it, tra transmute these, I guess I would say, into a positive way of saying it. So rather than does not take life, what is it to cultivate and encourage life? What is it to communicate truth? We have a precept said, that says, a disciple of Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or other. What is it to polish clarity? So if you're interested in these, what we are, they're called the clear mind precepts. They're posted on our office wall. You could go in and hand copy them, memorize them equally to the list of a disciple of Buddha does not. The last of the 10, as we recite them, a disciple of Buddha does not disparage the three treasures. We could reframe that to say, a disciple of Buddha respects the Buddha, unfolds the Dharma, nourishes the Sangha. These three necessarily coincide. Are, I, coincide is not exactly the right word. What am I looking for? These three, what appear to be three, mutually co-create. Mm -hmm. I encourage you to study the pure mind precepts. So in cultivating Buddha and our own Buddha mind, we have Zazen, we have Sashin, we have the opportunity to meet with a teacher, we have the opportunity to study the precepts together. These are all ways of uh, respecting and cultivating our relationship with not just the external Buddha, but our own wisdom nature. In Dharma, what we have as a resource to us, the chance to study, the chance to do service. When we do service, you know, that's a version of study. What we're doing is reciting or chanting the teachings that have been handed down through India, China, and Japan. Well, service is a form of study, studying the Dharma. And we pay attention to the world at large and our place in the world at large. And of course, as part of Dharma, the precepts. And in Sangha, we have the forms, we have community service, we have governance, we have the activity of maintaining the infrastructure. And in Sangha, we have the precepts. What shows up in all three Buddha Dharma Sangha? The precepts. So all of this, uh, the Buddha taught us. We have what is called Parinirvana Brief Admonitions Sutra. And it begins with, as I said, uh, you should know that these precepts are your great teacher. Then, all of you people, if you would like to be free from suffering and difficulty, you should know contentment, turn toward contentment. 
The Dharma of contentment is the place of blessings and happiness and peace. This is the Buddha teaching us. We have a choice at every step of the way. We can turn toward the afflictive or the constricted, or we can turn toward the liberative. We always have that choice. So the Buddha telling us, all of you people, turn toward the place of blessings, turn toward the place of peace. People who are content, although they might sleep on the ground, are peaceful and happy. Those who are not content, although they might abide in the heavens, are still dissatisfied. The Buddha teaching us in a way to be simply uh, turning toward the peaceful. Then later, all of you people, if you are diligent, nothing will be difficult for you. For this reason, all of you should be diligent. It is like a small stream flowing for a long time, which is able to bore through stone. If, on the other hand, the mind of one who practices becomes lax, it is like trying to make a fire by friction, but resting before there is any heat. Has anyone ever tried to make a fire by friction? It takes a long time, but as soon as there's heat, you know, as soon as there's a little spark, blow on that and bring that spark to life, right? So if we become fatigued and tired, we're not gonna get the heat and warmth that we want, right? So all of you monks, if you are diligent, nothing will be difficult for you. So the Buddha has this list of uh, admonitions. I can come back to that, but let me go down a slightly different direction for a while. In this teaching, the Buddha offered a wealth of practices. And I wanna say that it's not necessary to take up every single one of them with uh, full energy all day, every day. It's fine to just say, okay, I'm gonna work on diligence today. <laughs> okay, or oh, I'm gonna work on paying attention to what my hands are doing today. Just pick one and work on that. I'm gonna be careful about the way I speak to people today. Just pick that one thing and turn toward the liberative rather than the constrictive. So this wealth of very, very practical advice is what I would assert uh, anyone traveling along any spiritual path is also cultivating. I, I'm just finishing rereading a book uh, by Karen Armstrong, who's a brilliant scholar, um, called The History of God. And it takes uh, a, a long historical look, beginning probably six or 7,000 years ago, a long historical look at the way people have cultivated religious and spiritual practices over the years. And this particular book focuses on uh, the early Judaism and early Christianity and early Islam and the way in which people cultivated uh, these practical 
sets of advice for the people in their communities. And Karen Armstrong brilliantly brings in uh, indigenous mind, and she also folds in the, the wealth of Buddhist thinking into this book. This is what spiritual practices are doing all over the world. So in her description, she says, people have a tendency to vacillate. Oh, it has to be mystical. Oh, it has to be theoretical. And then next generation, oh, but no, it has to be mystical. And next generation, no, it has to be theoretical and scientific. She's saying, of course, both are necessarily true. And she's bringing that into modern times in the way spiritual life is unfolding in modern times as well. So I would assert that what the Buddha was teaching here is exactly a beautiful blend of the mystical. Uh, I will, she uses the word transcendent, and I really don't want to use that word, but I'll use mystical <clears throat> because it's kind of beyond our cognitive comprehension. It doesn't mean mysterious. It just means beyond cognition uh, and super practical. And the Buddha did this weaving of these in a instructive and open-hearted way. <clears throat> there is a uh, commentary, of course, on the Admonitions Sutra. And um, in that commentary, it's written this way. This sutra are not, these sutras are not meant to be sacred scriptures in that they tell us what to believe, but one should read them, listen to them, think about them, contemplate them, and investigate the present reality, the present experience with them. Then, and only then, can one insightfully know the truth beyond words. This commentary is saying what the Buddha also taught multiple times. You've heard me say it before. He said, don't believe me. Find out for yourself. And here are the practices. I'm giving them to you. Find out for yourself. So these are the practices that have been handed down to us over the you know, millennia. In our practice, we cultivate a deep and enduring trust in these teachings and in the many generations of wise women and wise men who have brought these teachings forward in time in their culture, in their place, in their time to that group of people. Always informed by bringing this into present experience. So this deep and enduring trust, I believe, supports the individual practitioner, each one of us, to fully meet whatever situations we encounter. And we, I'll repeat, we always have a choice to meet what we're encountering with a liberative consciousness we can also choose a constricted consciousness. There's no shame or harm in that, as long as we recognize consciously that that's what we're doing. We do what we call uh, taking refuge as an act of faith. That is a willingness to return 
again and again and again to the wisdom of the elders. My own habitual tendencies that are personal, some of them are cultural, some of them are what my society, my family, my culture handed me. Uh, some of these uh, habits are have a tendency to make me, and I would guess many others, self-centered and greedy and divisive. You know. Suzuki Roshi, our near ancestor, said something like this, y'all as Westerners have it harder <clears throat> because in this culture, you're taught to grab on to your individualism. In Suzuki Roshi's home culture, the collective, paying attention to the collective is the norm. So he said, you all as Westerners have it harder because in a way we have to unlearn this cultural habit or cultivate, it's probably a better way to say it, cultivate the habit of the collective. We take refuge in the ethical standards that have been handed down and we call them the precepts. And we, when we take the precepts formally, however we take the precepts formally, we can guarantee that we will not be able to keep them. So we have a saying, seven times fall down, eight times get up. Each time we recognize, oh, that was a little bit off, wasn't it? Recognize now I'm going to get up and resolve to return to my vow. <laughs> On a large scale, I would say many of us work for social justice and many of us work for uh, environmental protection. So our societal cultural, perhaps even personal delusions are in fact the gateway to resolving our social and environmental issues. Those difficulties are the Dharma gate. They are both personal and they are collective. So part of the gift of Sangha is to be present with each other, present for each other during these upside down times to support each other in choosing the liberative response. I was speaking with someone earlier today this way. I hope it can touch you as well. The already existing whole self, the already existing wholesome self that is momentarily posing as you. <laughs> you know, this lifetime, we could say it's momentary. This already existing whole self beyond comprehension posing as you wants to turn toward wholeness. You can trust that. 
Linda Ruth again uh, used to say this way, each person irreplaceable and irreplicable, the conditions of each one of our lives completely unique. And as Joan Sutherland has recently in the book we read over last practice period, each person fulfills their essential function, essential and minuscule. <laughs> that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But it's not, you know, each one of us are tiny part and each part essential to the whole. Through contemplation and through study, through appropriate action, this wholeness naturally expresses itself. We don't even have to try. Cultivating the mind of Zazen, totally blocked in resolute stability, is a training to be able to find that stability in the activity of our lives. And each one of us chooses within our own capacity and within the context of our own lives, where to be best of service. Family and friends, politics, social action, environmental care. We all have to choose on a daily basis. And we return to meditation regularly for refuge and for support. And to offer refuge and support to each other. I think each one of us could identify various conditions of ourselves on a daily basis that spin, that rotate through the day. Different conditions of me, I'm pretty introverted. That's probably not a surprise to you. I'm cautious. I can be very grouchy at times, often overly apologetic. So that's the part of me that would, would, that turns towards constriction. The part of me that turns toward liberation that's informed by non-separation. This part is quite a bit more generous, open. A different kind of response is invited when we turn toward non-separation. We always have a choice of whether, how to return to the vow. The absolute, the so-called mystical, vast, incomprehensible, tiny, incomprehensible. This shows up as the particular, it shows up as you. This is how we can understand Buddha's presence in the world and how it could be possible that his presence continues endlessly. Our enactment of vow, our enactment of ritual, our enactment of the precepts is the same as his actual presence in the world, the micro activity of our day-to-day -day life. Another wise teacher named Sherry Huber says, it's a title of a book. The title is enough. <laughs> you could study this for years. How you do anything is how you do everything. Bring your whole 
resolute self to everything you do. Here's another bit from Parinavana, Brief Admonition Sutra. All of you people, if you collect your mind, your mind will be concentrated. If your mind is concentrated, you can know the arising and ceasing of all appearances. For this reason, all of you should constantly and diligently practice concentration. If you attain concentration, your mind will not be scattered. Direct teaching of how to bring that kind of stability. Gather the mind. That's the translation of Sashin, by the way, gathering the mind. All of you people, if you are seeking for a good and wise advisor or for a wholesome benefactor, nothing compares with mindfulness. And you know the character that we have for mindfulness pronounced in Sino-Japanese, men. It simply means now mind, now heart. Now mind, now heart, bring this heart-mind into the present moment. That's mindfulness. And then at the very end here. All of you people, the world-honored one has now finished this compassionate teaching for your benefit. All of you only need to practice it diligently. Whether you are in the mountains, in a desolate marsh, beneath a tree, or in a quiet dwelling, be mindful of the Dharma you have received and do not forget it. Do not wait until you reach the time of death and be filled with remorse because you spent your life in vain. I am like a good doctor who understands illness and prescribes medicine. Whether you take it or not is not the doctor's responsibility. Moreover, I am like a virtuous guide who points out a good road. If one does not take that road, it's not the guide's fault. the Buddha wisely handing it right back to the disciples at that time. Here are the practices. Make it yours. I invite you to be intrigued by this notion. <clears throat>